the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Lake Powell long has been the shimmering heart of Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, but it's not the only asset of the NRA that covers 1.25 million acres in southern Utah and northern Arizona. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Last year, I had the good fortune to visit Glen Canyon NRA twice, once in May to kayak Lake Powell for four days, and then in July when I backpacked into the park's backcountry to not just admire its beauty, but watch efforts to reverse the spread of invasive vegetation in the park. But all is not well with the NRA. A long-running drought, said to be the longest in roughly 1,200 years, has left Lake Powell at its lowest level since it began filling in 1963. It reached its full impoundment in 1980, but shrinking snowpack levels in the Colorado River drainage in recent years has failed to generate enough runoff into Lake Powell to more than offset the water running through the hydroelectric generating station in Glen Canyon Dam and down into Grand Canyon National Park. To discuss the state of Lake Powell and Glen Canyon NRA as a whole, we've invited Glen Canyon Superintendent William Schott to join us. We'll be back in a minute with the superintendent. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. All right, we're back with Glen Canyon Superintendent William Schott. Welcome to The Traveler, Billy. Thanks for having me here, Kurt. So it's April. It's been a a so-so winter. I know um, up in uh, Park City, Utah, where I live, uh, we just had a nice little snowstorm that dumped about six to eight inches in our yard and hopefully uh, a lot more in the the high country. What are you hearing as far as uh, runoff into Lake Powell? Yeah, in short, I'm hearing from our colleagues at the Bureau of Reclamation that it's going to be another dry year, kind of on par with what we saw last year. So, you know, a disappointing series of years linked together, which gives us just even more uncertainty. I think we're at 3522 elevation today at the lake. We didn't expect to be this low, even with some of the emergency man-made actions that had taken place. But I, I think what I've heard most recently, and it's been a moving target for the last year, is that we're expecting um, close to 90% of water equivalent snowpack in the Rockies. It's already started to decline. We've already reached a high point. But I think the more disturbing statistic is that we're going to be still below 40% of runoff. In other words, 40% of that 
90% snowpack that we've got, we'll expect to see run into Lake Powell. Last year, we were about the same snowpack, 89%, and we only received 32, 33% of the runoff. And a big part of that, they're saying, is just a, a cumulative effect of the drought, extremely dry soil. So as the water starts to melt down from the Rockies, it's getting soaked up like a sponge before it can really get collected into the Colorado River Basin. Well, you know, I was just recently in Everglades National Park, and they got lots of water, so I asked them if they would share some and send it west to uh, the southwest, because we certainly could use it. I've got a friend that manages a park up by the Great Lakes, and they've got the same issue. We're uh, trying to figure out how to get a a pipeline between us. Yeah, that'd be nice. Um, something's got to be done. But, you know, going back to my introduction, you know, I, I had the the great opportunity to visit the NRA twice last year. Two totally different experiences. I mean, it was great to get out on a kayak uh, for four days and, and kind of explore part of the reservoir, part of the lake, because it's huge. And um, then in July, I got to, to backpack in um, to uh, the Escalante River drainage, um, a little up, up lake, and, and watch some efforts to... Um, remove invasive vegetation there. You know, I think that's one thing that people don't always realize about Lake Powell or Glen Canyon, and there I go mispronounced, mis- misspeaking. It's a huge NRA. It's not just Lake Powell. That's right. No, thank you for that. We appreciate it. It's amazing how many people don't know. And here's here's some other fun facts is, you know, even when the when the reservoir is at full pool, it still only represents about 12% of the landmass of the recreation area. So it's a small fraction of the entire area. We have experienced close to 80% increase in visitation over the last six and seven years. And the majority of that has been land-based. In other words, our boating activity has been about the same. It fluctuates a little bit every year. Gas prices certainly uh, have a bearing on that as well. But despite that being relatively constant, the increase that we've seen has all been to visit places like Escalani, to, to visit the different natural and cultural resources in and around Page, the height and Orange Cliffs area of the National Park at the very top, which extend up and adjacent to uh, Moab and Canyonlands National Park. That's, that's been picking up in visitation. And even places like our easternmost boundary up on Cedar Mesa, Muley Point, one of my favorite places that has also been experiencing more visitation and it's a mix, right? Some folks love to get in the back country, which we have some of the richest back country on the, the Colorado plateau. Other folks are coming through on buses and uh, doing tours and maybe just hitting some of the highlights like horseshoe bend or taking an air tour. But uh, it's, it's great to see. And it really tells me that we need to diversify the type of visitor services that we have here at Glen Canyon. Yeah, how how do you handle that that influx into uh, the landmass? I mean, um, I know there's dirt roads that, that skitter here and there throughout the NRA. Are, are people just going cross country, or you know, how how are they um, experiencing? Yeah, all all sorts of ways. Uh, prior to the pandemic, right uh, when our visitor center was open. By the way, our visitor center is open back up now, so it's probably another realistic stack. But the number one question we got in our visitor center prior to the pandemic was where are the trails? And my guess is now that the visitor center has been opened up for the last month, that's probably still the number one question that we're asked. So that's that's something that's been in our strategic plan for the last five years. 
for the first time in Glen Canyon's history, we have a trail crew and we have projects identified throughout the park for developing new trails, not just foot trails, but also multi-use trails so that they can be used either with livestock and or uh, mountain bikes, potentially even e-bikes. Right, right. Now, now getting back to, to Lake Powell itself, I, I know there is a vibrant boating industry that revolves around the, the lake, and it really provides a, a big economic boost into um, Page. With the, the decline in the, the water level there, um, you've had issues with your, your boat launches, and uh, I know you've been working with some outside consultants to see what you could do about that. How, how do things look today as far as the the upcoming season and, and getting boats launched into the lake? So, yeah, when this, it's a, that's a great question. And we're, we are prepared, not nearly as much as we'd like to. It's going to be a very unique year, uh, unprecedented for, for obvious reasons. We have today one operable ramp on Lake Powell. Typically at high water levels, we have 11. And we're down to one, and it's the state line auxiliary ramp located outside of Page, Arizona. Wow. We uh, that that ramp continues to be under construction until the water starts coming back up here in a couple of weeks, and so it'll get down to the lowest level that we can build it this season. And we'll continue to build that down next year if the water does get lower. And so we'll maintain access there, which will be really important for our concessioners, our visitors, our commercial use authorizations, uh, everyone that wants to go out there. We have another ongoing project up at Bullfrog. That's the Bullfrog North Ramp. It's also an extension. I call that an extension project. Uh, we're bringing it down as low as it can possibly go, which is about 3520. Uh, so even if it was built today, it probably wouldn't be usable. But as the water comes back up, it'll be able to be, to be, it'll be able to launch all manners of, of vessels up there. So that'll that'll give us what our goal has been all along, at least at minimum, one lake access point down lake and one lake access point up lake. And that'll get us through the season. Now, if you look at the projections, and those are changing all the time, but we do expect to get below that 3520 level uh, potentially again later in the fall uh, going into the winter, uh, depending on how much runoff we experience, depending on other type of man-made decisions are made as well, right? You've probably seen in the media just recently that there'll be a big decision made by our Secretary of Interior on April 22nd regarding holding water back. And it would be the first time that the United States withdrew some of the water rights uh, going into the lower basin. Uh, mm -hmm. if, if, that, if that happens, at least we'll maintain a level guaranteed to stay above power pool. But that's just how dynamic it is. We'll see. Anyways, my point being is once that water dips below 3520 again, We'll be back to one ramp access. I'll be here in the wall weep area. And so the next question I think you're alluding to is what are we doing for future access? And that is uh, the project work that we're looking at. We're working with an engineering firm now uh, and we're at a point in the phase one of that contract where we have uh, identified locations, developed conceptual drawings, and even some conceptual cost estimates for a different ramp location at Bullfrog, which would also include a different marina location. And then of course, utility delivery, uh, which most people don't realize has to occur. We're also looking at a potential regrade for a ramp that gets lower at Halls Crossing. We've also been working with this engineering firm to look at 
what a regrade would look like at Antelope Point, adjacent to the Navajo Nation, uh, down around the, the Page and Walweep area. And then last but not least, we're also looking at a potential new ramp location way at the very top up at height, which old timers <laughs> will know that we used to have a marine up there back in the day. That marine has long been been uh, been removed and the, the, the existing ramp up there has been high and dry for years uh, because of the, the 20 year drought. But we still have um, river rafters that come down on the Colorado River through Cataract Canyon. And that's an important takeout for them. So we're looking at some options to, to maintain some sort of viable uh, uh, kind of a primitive takeout up there as well. If we go forward, we have other projects we need to look at as well. Uh, and, and we don't currently have our engineering firm looking at these other locations, but we need to address, you know, the, the water congestion that we'll see around Waweep. We need to address our mid-lake services what used to be dangling rope that's had to been removed this last year because of lowering water levels. We want to evaluate those going into this next year as well. No small number of issues you've got confronting you. We're going to take a short break and we'll dive right back into those. We're here today with Glen Canyon superintendent, Bill Schott talking about uh, Lake Powell and its water situation, as well as the entire NRA and the experiences you can have out there. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to offer members up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity line of credit. Now is a great time to apply for a rate of 3.25% APR before they jump up. Take advantage of low rates and a great deal at interiorfcu.org. Membership is required, equal housing lender. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. We're back today with Glen Canyon Superintendent William Schott. Uh, Billy, um, I'm curious, you know, with the, the water situation and the, and the runoff coming up, do you expect uh, an earlier season in terms of some of the houseboaters? Or are they, they might come down and try and, you know, get on before the water falls any, any further after runoff? Boy, you know, Kurt, that is the million-dollar question. And uh, I was just driving around the park this morning and, and looking at the type of visitation we're starting to see already in, in, during this month. And it's it's hard to guess. You know, one of the, one of the things that affects you probably know this already that affects National Park Service visitation the most uh, is gas prices. And so that's going to play a role, and I think it even affects us more because of uh, you know the amount of gas some of these vessels use on on Lake Powell. With sure. that said, we're seeing a lot of folks come to Glen Canyon already, and our visitation stats through the entrance stations don't indicate a big drop. We're still seeing the type of visitation close to, not on par, but close to what we've seen in years past. Uh, so it, it's a 
it's a real it's a real guess. What I what I do know regarding the houseboating is that folks are desperate to get their houseboats on the lake. And that may be an additional problem for us. What we're finding is we're is that we're starting to see more what we call orphan houseboats. So houseboats that are able to get on the lake. They don't have a home on the lake, right? They don't have a slip that they're renting at uh, Antelope Marina or Wawit Marina or up at Bullfrog. Uh, but they're getting on to make sure that they're going to have access to the summer. The problem that that presents us is uh, there is a limitation for uh, boat voyages, but that's the least of the issue. The other issue is that as these boats stay on the lake, they're being beached. Uh, folks might be using them to turn or change their uh, water levels, their fuel levels, their food levels uh, before they take another voyage. And the longer that those boats are on the water without being hooked up utilities and without under the constant eye of an operator, they run the risk of running out of power, perhaps their bilge pumps don't operate correctly. Uh, we have weather events, as you know, out here that could put them at risk. So I, I'm concerned about the public safety risk of those vessels being out there potentially unattended. I'm also concerned about the environmental risk of those vessels being unattended over an extended period of time to where they may start to sink, lose fluids, uh, and it becomes a larger issue. So we're looking at ways to, to manage that. And, uh, but at the same time, make it easier for folks to enjoy the lake. As you know, it's huge, even at these water levels, uh, but th there are some unique challenges that we're going to be presented with this year. Is there concern that some of those uh, houseboats could beach as the water level drops or are they, they got enough draft out there? No, absolutely. For the next few weeks, we're not too concerned about them beaching. But once we reach the high point for this year, sometime in uh, probably late June, and the water levels start to descend rapidly, if they're unattended, they could easily find themselves three, four, five feet out of water, which then makes it impossible to remove. Uh, the, the larger issue is that they they could start, they could get damaged by a wind event uh, and start to sink and become grounded that way as well. And, and one of my concerns is that they could start leaking fluids, whether that's human waste or fuel, you know, both would be a, a major environmental concern for us. So we, we want to make sure that any boat that is launching has a, either one of two things, either a home uh, that they'll be hooked up to utilities and be able to be monitored, or they have a plan for getting off the lake. You know, they have a they have an agreement for dry storage, and get and, and get back off. It's it's difficult though. I feel sorry for our houseboat owners that are having to transport these boats over the highway. You know, some of these may have been able to take a short trip over to Antelope Point. Now they're having to travel across the bridge. They might require an escort from Arizona Department of Public Safety. And it's probably costing them some additional dollars. So it's it's um, the, there's a domino effect to these low water issues, and it's it's touching almost everybody. Yeah. yeah. Do you have the authority to order people to remove their boats from the the lake? A absolutely. We we don't want to go there, but I think maybe an interim step that we we are considering is requiring a special use permit for launching, and the conditions of that would of that permit would be having to show a, a proof of uh, uh, having a home, having a slip on the lake, or at least having proof that they are able to remove it and put it in the dry storage uh, in, in a reasonable amount of time. 
Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, as I, I mentioned, uh, a buddy and I went in um, last May from Bullfrog, and we did some kayaking. We we went into uh, Moki Canyon and Crystal Canyon and Forgotten Canyon, and um, just had a great time for the the four or five days we were on the water. You know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about you know the, the incredible canyon country that the the lake put underwater, and now that the the lake is going down. A lot of that canyon country is coming back to life and, and accessible and whatnot. In light of the, the situation with the boat ramps, are you seeing more muscle-powered craft? You know, people who don't need that um, concrete launch to, to get their boat into the water. They can just carry down the kayak or whatnot on their shoulder and launch that way. Yeah, we, no, we have we have seen that. Even prior to the, the low water crisis that we're experiencing now and, and over the last year, we were seeing a huge increase in non-motorized paddlecraft, uh, kayaks and paddleboards. And they it's taken off. It's become a very vibrant cottage industry here in Page, Arizona, both in terms of renting uh, and uh, guiding and outfitting with these type of craft. And as you know, obviously from your most recent experience, it is just a phenomenal landscape uh, to experience from, from a paddleboard or, or from a, a kayak. And I do expect that we'll see even more visitation from you know, that user group, which we encourage. We just made a few changes in our wall weep operations for this year, identifying a, a paddle sport designated parking area and access area off of the wall weep a main ramp, which is high and dry now, so it can't be used by motorized. So it's a perfect mm-hmm. opportunity for paddlecraft to go down there. And it's one of the few places you're going to be able to park you know, closely to the lake. We love that activity. You know, a few years ago, you may not be aware of this. We started to recognize this need and we identified three different canyons within uh, Lake Powell that are wakeless only. We haven't restricted them to motorized craft, but we have put a, a wakeless speed limit uh, just to, to facilitate the use of paddlecraft and to avoid the type of visitor conflicts that could potentially come in those closed canyons. And uh, we've gotten some great feedback on that. I can see that, uh, that as that becomes more popular, we might designate more of those canyons to accommodate them. And I think right now with the low water, there's many, many more of these side canyons that are just prime for exploration by paddle sports. Uh, they're narrower. You, you won't see the same type of motorized traffic in them anyways. That's probably what you experienced. Right. And right. so it's a phenomenal, phenomenal way to experience. And if you think about it, we're at lake levels now that we haven't seen since 1967, just a few years after the dam was completed. Wow. And so you're gonna get a chance to see things that people haven't seen in decades without the telltale signs of you know, generations of houseboats and other boats mooring up and, and anchoring on the side. So I think it's a pretty exciting time for those type of users. You know, I've been told that there is a book out there. Um, I'm not sure how old it is, but the, the author went and you've got buoys that mark the, the river miles on the reservoir and they would take a picture at, you know, this river mile and then go back historically and get a picture from that area. Um, I'd really like to get my hands on that book because it'd be a fascinating experience in kind of going back in the past and seeing how it looked and how it looks today. I would love to see that book too. I bet that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. 
We're talking today with Glen Canyon Superintendent William Schott. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. So we're back with Glen Canyon Superintendent William Schott. Superintendent, I'm curious, how has the declining lake level affected Rainbow Arch National Monument? Yeah, I'm going to correct you, Kurt. It's Rainbow Bridge National Monument. Oh, you're right. I'm uh, sorry. We'll give you a pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no. Well, it it that's interesting. We were just talking before the break about um, paddle paddlers going in out into the lake and seeing areas that you know, literally haven't been touched for decades. And uh, I was up and uh, at Rainbow Bridge National Monument not too long ago. Uh, and I, I took a hike uh, up, to, up to the bridge and it was an amazing experience. Now you had to walk quite a ways to get to the beginning of the established trail uh, when the mm -hmm. most folks have seen what at normal water levels. And that period, that, that, that space below where folks have been walking now for years and years, it looked virtually untouched. It was, it, having been up there dozens and dozens of times, going up and seeing it in, in the state that it's in now uh, was a real treat. You, you began to get a sense of what that area may have looked like, right? Long before uh, Glen Canyon Dam was even an idea. It's amazing how fast the desert really does recapture itself, especially in these drainages. So it is a, it is a very special experience. Now, the downside is there is um, very, very limited access in there. Where, uh, for some of your listeners that may not know, we typically have a, a, a dock set up. There are restrooms there. Uh, there are places to moor your boat, uh, a trailhead, and even some sage structures along the way. All of that has had to be removed right now. So if you were to go up there today, Kurt, and wanted to go check out the bridge, you certainly could, but you would have to figure out how to exit, how to, how to anchor your vessel. It would have to be a small one at that and, and how to get off your boat, you know, in that drainage. And then you'd have to navigate your own way up, up the, the canyon. If you're able to do all that, it is well worth it. But uh, you know, one, of the, one of the disappointing things for this season is we won't be able to uh, have the tour boats go up and um, show the thousands of visitors that we typically see it in a normal year. 
you know, so the, the type of access that we've enjoyed in the past is no longer there, at least not for this year. But for the few uh, hardy folks that are willing to go up there, I can guarantee you it's going to be a special experience. How far a hike is it with uh, declining lake level? That's a good guess. I think today, um, don't quote me on this. Nobody's listening. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me get back to you on that, Kurt. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want to mislead anyone that just got excited about going up there. But it's, um, it's probably, uh, I'll put it this way, over, over half the hike now is below the established trail that folks may have been familiar with. So it's, it's, a, it's a few miles. Okay, okay, not to worry. Um, one other issue that you've been dealing with for a number of years is uh, quagga mussels. And um, I was um, pretty shocked when I got down there in my kayak and was looking at the, the canyon walls and how uh, coated they were with uh, quagga mussel shells. What's the situation with that? Is it a, a hopeless task? Is it a manageable task? Um, any hopes of ever eradicating them from the, the reservoir? I don't think, I don't think so. Yeah. Not, uh, not unless it was something even more devastating that would come in and, and reverse that. I can't, I can't imagine what that would be, you know, several, for several years, uh, quagga mussels were first identified as a risk of these waterways. Really proud uh, to look back at history and see that this park spent 10 years in a prevention program. So we had personnel on the ramps. We were inspecting vessels before they came. Of course, a huge education component and a monitoring component and a, a ton of research occurring at the same time. And for 10 years, um, the park was able to keep uh, quagga mussels from fully infesting the lake, which, which was great. If you, you know, if you look at a comparison during that same period of time, our sister recreation area, Lake Mead became fully infested. Right. Uh, and so that was a great success. However, after about 10 years, the battle was lost. The lake did become infested and we shifted our program from a prevention to a containment. So our, our mission right now regarding quagga mussels is to prevent the spread of them. There's still a lot of waterways in the West, specifically in Utah, uh, but especially up in the Northwest that aren't infected. And as you know, quagga mussels will significantly and negatively impact uh, fisheries. And right. so, you know, just through being good stewards, we are doing everything we can to prevent the spread of mussels from this enormous waterway uh, and, and having them infect other waters in the state and surrounding states and especially start to uh, impact the fisheries in the Northwest. That's a huge economy up there. So we want to be very responsive to that. Now, locally here, what we're looking at, we're always looking at different techniques and different ways to do it. And our ultimate goal is to you know, move away from this uh, very laborious and you know, personnel heavy inspection and decontamination program and more into a reporting uh, and a networking program. Uh, so instead of having these boat inspections occurring uh, by us and our partners in Utah and Arizona, you know, we could somehow automate the system to where any boat that comes into Lake Powell is recorded potentially automatically and put into a database. And then those 
land managers and stewards, say up in, in northern Utah or uh, up in the northwest, they would have record of that. So if this that vessel showed up, they would know to either quarantine that particular vessel, look for proof of decontamination, or simply just not let them go in. Uh, and I think it's that type of communication network that will that is going to be the key to preventing the spread of these muscles any further throughout the United States, especially up in the north. We're always looking at other options, though. We, we are now running on, I believe this will be the third year of a very successful pilot program that we've, we've done with uh, the state of Utah. We have a dip tank. It's just an expedited method for decontaminating uh, vessels, especially those vessels that hold water. We have a lot of vessels, they call them wake, wake vessels, and uh, they've got these enormous ballasts of water that they pump in. They're extremely difficult to clean, but these dip tanks are now making that really easy and risk-free for when they leave. Mm -hmm. We're also mm -hmm. looking at other, other tools. There's something very interesting being worked on that uh, uses ultrasonic waves to prevent the uh, quagga mussels from massing on critical infrastructure. Uh, it doesn't get rid of them, but it it, it keeps them pre um, preventing infrastructure damage. And it could be extremely important for us in the future because if that were to work, it could allow us to filter the water that goes out of Glen Canyon Dam. And that, Kurt, it, when we have time, I, there's all sorts of natural resource issues associated with warmer water and sure. lower water going through Glen Canyon Dam and go entering into the Colorado River below us. You know, your inspection program, I was really impressed by it last year when we came off the lake and uh, we're heading out, you know, we had two sea kayaks and, um, you know, of course we had our car down by the boat launch and uh, we loaded up everything there and everything got, you know, a lot of stuff got stuck into the, the kayaks and we drove up to the inspection point and the, the young lady told us to take everything off and had to climb up there and take it all out. But boy, she was thorough. Um, I was really impressed by it. And, um, you know, as far as, you know, that automated tracking system that you mentioned, how would that work with a, a sea kayak? I mean, if there's no, you know, boat number on the hull. Right. No, you bring up a good point. It, it would uh, think there's always going to be a need for, you know, some sort of personnel heavy presence, right. To, to catch that. And, but I, uh, so I, the answer is, I don't know, right. We, yeah. I think that's, that's what we continue to look for. And, uh, we're hoping two things. One is that private industry, uh, will get a toehold for the decontamination. We think there's a lot of money to be made, uh, by private industry rather than have that be a government service. And then we also think that there's a lot of innovation out there and new technology that we'd like to see the private industry bring to us to test. And we're, we're you know, I'll advertise right now, we're open to any pilot program that could help us start to uh, strengthen and, and automate our containment program. It's real interesting, of course, you know, you've got your partners in, in the park service as well as the, the states that uh, contain national parks with water bodies in them. And I know they're all working their hardest to, um, monitor um, watercraft coming into their, their parks and their states. And uh, so far, they seem to be doing a good job. As you know, I'm sure up at Yellowstone, they, they spotted a, a houseboat that, had, or a pontoon boat, I guess, that had been in Lake Powell and um, they found a, a quagga mussel on it. I, I can't remember if it was a live or dead one, but nevertheless, that type of scrutiny um, on, on watercraft going 
throughout the country, <laughs> throughout the region is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, no, it's uh, all of all of the national parks units that have bodies of water up north are extremely worried about this. I know they're, they're putting a lot of resources toward uh, their prevention program, and I hope they I hope they uh, keep a prevention program and never have to transition to a containment program. It's not a lot of fun, but it's a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll see how that goes. Superintendent, thanks so much for the update today. I know you've got a lot of um, big projects to deal with and and figure out how best to approach them. But uh, it's been great to catch up on the situation down there at Glen Canyon. And uh, I I know uh, a lot of our readers and listeners are looking forward to to getting down to Lake Powell and exploring uh, the landscape as well. Well, Kurt, thank you. I know you're a real advocate. Thanks for inviting me today. And uh, especially thank you for enjoying your public lands. Glad to know you're out there. Uh, It's a great place to be, that's for sure. Take care now. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I'll be sitting down with Everglades National Park Superintendent Pedro Ramos to discuss a wide range of issues, from invasive species at the National Park to restoration of the River of Grass and Everglades National Park's 75th birthday this fall. Also, in mid-May on the Traveler's Monthly Webinar, I'll be with former National Park Service Director John Jarvis and his brother Destry to discuss their upcoming book, National Parks Forever, 50 Years of Fighting and a Case for Independence. The book delves into the politicalization of the National Park Service and calls for the agency to be broken out of the Interior Department. Watch nationalparkstraveler.org for the exact date of that webinar. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.